Bigfoot is a show about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, the hopers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit our Facebook page. This is Sasswood, a show about Bigfoot. I am one of your hosts, Mark Mansky, and tonight I'm joined by the co-host with the most, Andy Mansky. Hi, hi, howdy, hi, hello, hi, hi. How are you doing? Great. I froze up there. Sorry. That's okay. The wheel was turning yeah. around, and it, 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 it loaded. Happens. Yeah, you loaded. It's good. Um. So, what <laughs> have you been up to today? Today and this week and other times and time and space. <laughs> Just in general, what have you been up to? I mean, five years ago, what were you doing right now? Um, probably about the same thing, which is recovering from Easter. And today we recovered from Easter by playing golf, going out to eat. <laughs> recovering from Easter. We did a bunch of work today. That's yeah. That's true. Right. Mowed the lawn around Sasha Tower. <laughs> <laughs> Got in the we lift had... and washed all the windows yes. on Sasswit Tower, which takes about six hours. Yeah, we worked really hard today. And we golfed, too, with right. my grandfather, your dad. That was a great time. I had some really good drives. That's the best shots I've seen you ever hit in your entire life. So that was pretty momentous. Golf what? A podcast about <laughs> golf. Um, So... So what else? Oh, talk about um, uh, Beyond the Edge Radio. Um, we were on Beyond the Edge Radio, Eric Altman's podcast, and it was a really awesome time. It was great fun for me personally to be interviewed because I had never been interviewed before on a podcast. And it was fun because me and you were interviewed and Seth was there. Seth, Seth was there. Seth was being interviewed too. <laughs> Um, and Seth was right there. <laughs> Seth was right there, <laughs> and um, it it was a great time. Skype was being Skype. Yeah. Um, Seth had difficulties, and yeah, poor Brandon didn't even get on. Yeah, because he was there with Seth, right there, right there with Seth, but... with us there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was uh, glitchy. I felt bad, but. You know, just a, a shout out to Eric Altman for being awesome, and he just knows how to roll with it and keep the conversation flowing, which he did a wonderful job of. And I, I don't know, we could go on and on about his support of this show because there's really no reason why he is in a position where he feels like he has to support us. I mean, it should be the other way around. So we really love the fact that he's a fan of the show and, and likes to listen and has us on occasionally. It was it was a lot of fun. Because you're right, we we rarely get interviewed. We're usually mm-hmm. doing the questions. So it's neat to be on the receiving end of that. We do have some letters Ooh, that I could read. Read those. I will. And the first one comes from Jake. And Jake writes... Guys, the new Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Netflix is fantastic. Episode 2 is Cry Wilderness, a story of a boy who has met Bigfoot. I think you guys will appreciate it. We have seen that part of the new Mystery Science Theater 3000, and it is awesome. I mean, we'll probably get into it more on our other show, Monsterland Ohio Radio. But it really is Mystery Science Theater brought back now. And for those who don't know, Mystery Science Theater 3000 is a television show, but now it's on Netflix, which I guess it still is a television show. But um, where about a guy who gets shot up in the space and he's forced to watch these really bad movies. And they kind of he makes fun of them along with the, these robots he has. And it's a really good show. And it's back on Netflix, and it's really good. And Cry Wilderness is a movie I had never even heard of. And 
I laughed my way through it with the Mystery Science Theater riffing it and making fun of it. And even if it didn't have that, I was laughing my way through it. It's just, it's hilarious. Cry Wilderness is such a terrible movie. Just (laughs) ran. (laughs) Thinking of some of the riffs right now, I'm sorry. But it's just hilarious. It's, I mean, like, the kid, what's his name? Paul? Paul. Has this neck. Because most kids are named Paul. (laughs) Paul. (laughs) And... Sorry, Paul's he out just, there. He just has this haircut that's perfect 80s, and mm-hmm. the people in it randomly laugh sometimes. Like, it, raccoons are rampaging through the house. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anyone who has Netflix, watch MST3K The Revival, and then go back and watch the classic episodes. Because, what is it, 20 of them are on there? 15? 20? Fourteen. Sixteen. <laughs> some some number in that range. Now I went back in David Coleman's Bill blah, Bill <laughs> I went back in <laughs> take two. I went back in David Coleman's Bigfoot filmography and Cry Wilderness is actually in there. And I think it says a lot about how bad this movie really is, is that he spends almost no time talking about the movie itself, but instead about the writer and things of that nature. But the one comment that he did make that I thought was pretty interesting is that it was a reaction to Harry and the Hendersons. So like when Harry and the Hendersons came along, then all these, you know, low budget movie companies thought, oh, let's capitalize on this and make a Bigfoot movie of our own. And they did. And this is it. Yeah. It's. And don't watch this thinking there's going to be a lot of Bigfoot action either. There's some. And he talks. <laughs> Bigfoot talks. Bigfoot talks. Your father's in danger. Commu- That's not a joke. He Watch the movie with Paul. Yes, they forge a bond, which is <laughs> through Coke and radios. <laughs> Coca Cola. I'm telling you, if you're out there in the field looking for the creature, you, you Coke might right next to you. you <laughs> in that scene, there were probably. There's like, like 80 cans of Coke it's like laying you go. around. And he, Bigfoot crushed them in a way that and no human... Jim couldn't. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just... I've been laughing for the past two minutes now, but it's just... Yeah, and then so... at the end... Okay, if you plan on going and seeing... Since you seem interested in Cry Wilderness, <laughs> and who wouldn't be, who really? Wouldn't? After that glowing <laughs> review... <laughs> The ending of the movie. So, spoiler. There's a little spoiler, but really, it's a movie that's being riffed. There's really no. It's the ending. And there's this mean. What would you call him? Not super. Headmaster. Headmaster of Paul's school. <laughs> and he doesn't believe Bigfoot's real. And he's making Paul t- say it's fake. And at the end, he has a change of heart. And the whole time, <laughs> the look the actor is giving is like this. Mm, like this, this like frowning smile look, which is he's happy and he's like, I've always thought fairy tales might be real, <laughs> and like he goes like, I'd like to meet Bigfoot, and Paul's like, uh, he can only be seen by kids, and I'm like, what? When is where's this in the movie? And then, okay, don't end, don't spoil it. Don't I just said it. spoilers? I know, but don't. Okay, I won't. Don't shoot into too, my. It's too. Great. Please. <laughs> I, I'm going to. Okay. Fast forward 15 I, seconds. I can't Bigfoot is outside the window with, because Paul's necklace <laughs> made him come. And like, there's this music, which I thought was MST3K playing music over it. But it's really like, oh, what is it? It's like, it's like, da, na, na, na. Like this deep emotional <laughs> music. It's great. Go see it. It's the best. Red Hawk. Red Hawk, <laughs> you'll know what we're talking about, Red Hawk, who somehow exists. So cry, wilderness. After life alert. Okay, moving on. They, they come into the theater and say, well, I guess, wilderness. <laughs> it's great. Yes. Go see it. It is great. Okay, and then Paul writes, not... <laughs> <laughs> Paul, Paul, you reached not, out to us. Not Paul from the movie, I don't think. <laughs> Are you? I don't think. Paul writes, greetings from northern Kentucky. Nope, that's wrong. See, I'm just, I'm in the zone of cry wilderness. My mind is blown. Greetings from northern New York. 
I really enjoy the show, especially the ones lately about Alaska and Alabama. Can't wait till you get to New York because they do call our state home. Mm. It's true. If you watch Beast of Whitehall by Small Town Monsters. Uh, that too. Um. What? That's great. Yeah. I can't wait to get to New York. I keep looking forward and being like, oh, I can't wait. Like, something I was thinking about today is what are we going to do for Ohio? My hope is, listeners, since we have a lot of listeners in Ohio, maybe lots of listeners will write in and tell us what they think about Bigfoot in Ohio, or sightings they've had, or things they've experienced. Or maybe we won't talk about Bigfoot at all at our Sasquatch Nation Ohio episode. We'll go, like, we'll talk about, I don't know. I I think what we'll do I think what we'll do is sit on our front porch and watch Bigfoot walk by. Yeah, because we're in Ohio. It happens. (laughs) I've seen him. He's here. But but Paul, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, New York. There's lots going on there all the time, and uh, not just in Whitehall where winter things happen, but um, (laughs) lots of other parts of New York. Has Bigfoot activity. And uh, speaking of the Sasquatch Nation series, how's that for a segue? Now I can look at my notes. Now you can look at those notes, sir. (laughs) My Sharpie notes that bled through my notebook paper. (laughs) About four pages worth. Tonight's episode is focusing on the glorious state of Arizona. Initial thoughts. Um, Arizona? Yeah. Um, it's a state out west. Um, its name starts with A and ends in A. Wow. Which, yeah, is that the right. only state that ends in a letter? No. Or starts in a letter and ends Alabama. in Alabama. <laughs> the one we just did. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. okay. So, other thoughts. Um, isn't it? Oh, man, I'm terrible. I don't know any geography. Isn't it, like, right up against Mexico? Isn't Mexico right to its south? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Uh, to its north is Utah. To its east is New Mexico. To its west is California and something else, too. Nevada, maybe. Nevada. Yeah, I don't... Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, what else about Arizona do I know? That's about it. Okay. What's the capital? Is it Phoenix? See, I ask me something about cryptozoology and geography, like where's Falk? Where's Lake Champlain? I'll know right away. Normal things like, you know, Phoenix is Phoenix the capital? No clue. Um Oh, I have one more. Oh no, forget it. Okay. I'll save it for the end of the show cuz it's not related to Sasquatch Nation, Arizona. All right. Well, let's get into some of the facts about the state. As I've done before, I like to look into the meaning of the name. And like almost every place name in the United States, it seems like, except for super simple ones, scholars are not exactly sure where the name came from. No one knows. Or, it, you know, maybe it'd be more accurate to say it's not that they don't know where it comes from, but they disagree as to the origin. It comes from the Hopi Indians. Sorry, um, scholars who really debate that. that all right. Like that. So one scholar named Dean, Dean Saxton notes that the name Arizona comes from Al Schoen, translated as Place of Little Spring. Historian James McClintock compliments this interpretation, concluding that the name probably derived from a native place name that sounded like Alizon or Ali Shonak, which meant small spring or place of the small spring. State historian Marshall Trimble agrees with a different interpretation that it actually is based on a Basque word named the good oak tree. Wouldn't it be fun if we were doing this and, like, Idaho really meant hairy man or something? Yeah, I know. This research. Sadly, I don't think that'll ever happen. Um, So that, that whole Basque thing comes from the idea that the name Arizona can be found in Central and South America where the Spanish and Basque settled. And where no Tohono or Pima names are, uh, where where Tohono and Pima names are unlikely to be found, so it's it's kind of up in the air at this point. But it it's pretty interesting to note that uh, once again, people aren't really sure where the See, name came from. People aren't sure about Bigfoot, and people aren't sure about state names. 
Things we take for granted every day. Um, more facts. More facts. Yes, Arizona covers one hundred fourteen and six square miles, making it the sixth largest of the fifty states. What state number is it? What number was it founded in? I don't know. I don't have that information. Sorry. But um, here's some. Here is some geographical information. Um, a lot of people think of Arizona as one big desert, but in fact, uh, there is mountain and plateau area. The largest ponderosa pine forest in the United States is found uh, in the Grand Canyon State. Arizona can be divided into uh, some major land areas, Colorado Plateau, which is in the northeast section of the state, uh, the transition zone, and the basin and ridge region. Let's see. Now, here's a name, uh, a Magian. The Magian Rim is something we're going to end up talking about a lot tonight because that is actually a geologic formation that runs through the state, and it's a large ridge. Um, do you want to hear about the Magian Rim? Yeah. This is from... That, that's going to be our movie, by the way. Magian Rim. Okay. <laughs> the Bigfoot movie where they fight robots. Yes. This is from the website PaysonRimCountry.com. Uh, the Rim. It shows up on maps as little more than a jagged ink line making its way across Arizona. One of the state's defining natural features, this giant slanting escarpment of volcanic and sedimentary rock and pine has amazed and hypnotized travelers for hundreds of years. The rock monster serves as a boundary between two distinct worlds, the cool high country above it and the burning deserts below, a precipice where dreams can begin or where they might end. The Magian Rim, even the word remains a mystery. Say, where's this Magnolia or Mulligan, uh, mm -mm, Mongolian Rim you folks got around here? Tourists ask. Stupid tourists. <laughs> yeah, get it right. It's mug. Muggy. <laughs> Lo locals will tell you Muggion is correct. The name probably comes from Juan Ignacio Flores Magian, <laughs> sorry, Spanish governor of New Mexico from 1712 to 15. Geologists will tell you it was formed by a great upheaval followed by flooding and erosion. Geographers will tell you it measures 200 miles long and forms the southern end of the Colorado Plateau. Ordinary folks simply stand on its most dramatic point and gaze up at its 2,000-foot-high rock facings wow. and try to find words to match its magnificence. Okay, scratch my first plot idea. Bigfoot fights rock monsters. <laughs> okay. Muggy and Rim. What's it called? Muggyone. Muggyone? Muggyone. Muggyone. Muggyone? It's just not Mogollon. It's like not Mogollon. Mogollon. So there's a lot more on that point, but I think we'll we'll just say that um, suffice it to say that's going to be a place of concentration of reports and that's that we'll be northern? looking at. Nor yes, it's it's north and east, and Ooh. it is the place really where, as it says there, it divides the line between. Sort of the stereotypical Arizona of desert and the high country where you can get some pretty cold temperatures in the wintertime. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it snows in Arizona, right? It does. Sometimes. Sure can. It snows in the desert. Um, so there's, I mean, one other thing I wanted to mention, and then we'll get into the reports themselves. And that is the fact that. American Indian tribes, uh, First Nations people, are extremely well represented in the state. And here's some facts about that. 22, 22 sovereign American Indian communities currently inhabit Arizona. Total reservation land covers over a quarter of the state. Some tribes are descended from Arizona's very first inhabitants. Others appeared just a few centuries before Spanish explorers trekked into the area. 
Today, an estimated 5 to 6% of Arizona's total population is of American Indian ancestry. In fact, the state has the second largest American Indian population in the entire United States. I think that's relevant because of the natural connection between Native American folklore and remembered history and Bigfoot reports and Sasquatch. There's just an undeniable link that's there. And, you know, if there's a cause and effect there, I, I think, you know, people have devoted entire books and lifetimes of study trying to figure that out. But there's a connection in some regard. And so that's going to be relevant in many of the stories that we'll talk about tonight. So do you want to get us started with the sure. report that grabbed your attention? Now, this one is from John Green's Sasquatch the Apes Among Us. That's a good place to start. It always is. That's that's some advice for people who want to get into it. Get Apes Among Us and just look in your state. And I think we've had success with everything so far. Um, I want to say... What's, okay. I have one, if I can find it. Okay, I got it. Um, this one took place on January 23rd, 1971, um, to two students from North Arizona University. They reported to the Flags Flagstaff City Police. This took place near Flagstaff, and that is in the central part of the state. It's pretty much right in the middle of Arizona, for those who don't know. And they reported to city police about 1 a.m. That day, while parked on a remote side of the road, they saw a thing with a face covered with hair leaned against their car and looking in the window. He shouted, and it ambled slowly away. The face was ape-like, and the creature appeared to be about five feet tall. That's a short report, but a good one. Another Bigfoot interaction with a car report another looking into a car we had that with alaska alaska is starts in a letter and ends in a letter too that's true um and (laughs) and like there's no other state the only states we've done have been that um so what do you think of that report the thing that's interesting to me about that is it mentions a smaller creature and we're going to hear a few more of those tonight because there, I believe in, in Apes Among Us, there's another sighting report of a relatively even smaller creature. And here you get into, uh, again, like the some of the skinwalker stuff. And John Green himself says yeah. that it's sort of complicated. Yeah, he matter. mentions that right... Oh, wow, I did do it. Um, he mentions it... One second. Let me find it. Okay, well, while you're doing that, I have a flagstaff report of my own very okay. short one and this comes from the bigfoot case book by janet and colin board and just a little this is going back in time a little bit in 1924 near flagstaff arizona two women saw one in their ranch garden pulling up turnips the seven foot creature covered with light colored hair also carried some corn it ran off with its spoils jumping a fence on the way to the forest so there you have a garden pilfering Bigfoot in the Flagstaff area. And um, turnips. Turnips, right. And Flagstaff, it should be noted, is regarded as sort of a gateway community to the Grand Canyon. And it's not that far from the Muggion Rim, uh, where, where part of that is. So uh, regionally... That all makes sense as a place. Oh, one other thing I want to mention before I forget is the Muggian Rim, as it runs sort of west-east or east-west, is also considered to be a highway for elk. In fact, one of the largest um, populations of elk moves along that as a <laughs> migration pattern. So when you talk about big creatures and food sources, um you can get a lot of mileage out of the elk, I think, from what I understand about the size of those animals. 
Okay, so here's what I have. This is what John Green wrote about a skinwalker connection. And he said, Arizona and New Mexico present a special problem with regard to hairy report, reports of hairy bipeds because they are supposed because they are supposed to be wolfmen among the Navajo Indians who run about at night dressed in wolf skins. If that is so, it greatly increases the chance of mistaken identification, especially since there are reports from those states of creatures that were man-sized or even smaller. So that's very interesting, and it's very smart of him to point out the fact that there could be reports with flaws in them, because there are people allegedly running around in hairy in a, in a hairy outfit with a wolf skin on. So that's very interesting to me. That's the great one of the great features about John Green's style of writing is that he's always looking at it from. Um, and, you know, an objective standpoint and entertaining different explanations for what might be happening there. There's some other really good items that are right in that same that same page, if you want to get into those. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from, oops, sorry there. Uh, this is from Yarnell, mm-hmm. Arizona. In 1977, had two sightings to report. More than half a century apart, she she said there's a lady that wrote him a letter. That when she lived near Flags, Flagstaff in 1924, she and her mother saw a creature oh in a garden pulling up turnips. That's part of it. And then the one I was thinking of was... The, there's also that where in 1975, um, this is from the same town where you just reported it, um, there was a resident who told, um, of seeing a, something in his rearview mirror, a huge ape-like animal running along behind his car. He stopped and got out and it ran away. Next day he saw it again up on a mountainside, lumbering along, its arms swinging and extending below its knees. So it's interesting to have reports in the same area, but in time far apart. And then there's also one that... This is John Green writing this. He said, A school school teacher wrote me in 1969 that one night in the fall of 1965, while driving north from Winslow, Arizona, I was startled to see that I thought was a charred man climbing over a low fence or a guardrail into the road. He turned his car and went back to the spot where he saw a fi- where he saw a figure, not a burned man at all, but a glossy pelted thing that ran like a man mocking an ape, more man than ape in his run, but more ape than man in his looks. The creature was about three feet high with a glossy back pel- black pelt about an inch deep, no visible ears, and great long arms. He saw it for about fifteen to t- or twenty seconds. That night, he drew a picture of it, and later he found that Navajo and Hopi children at a school where he was teaching recognized it as one of their their legendary creatures, a skinwalker. That's really cool. You said that was three feet tall? Three feet tall. So we're getting smaller as far as creatures that we talked about. Yeah, Yeah, and that's, um, it should be noted that a huge section of northeast Arizona is Navajo land. And when you look at a map of the Indian reservations, Navajo land actually encircles the Hopi reservation. It's completely surrounded by Navajo. So it's just a gigantic slice of northeast where you get into the high mountain country with uh, the cooler weather and and um, where a majority of the Sasquatch sightings take place in the state. I want to take you back to the real old school. This is the oldest report that I could find. And this takes place in 1903. Um, Was pulled from the Arizona Republican. Found the the listing on weirdus.com, by the way. 1903, Arizona Republican, a uh, person by the name of I.W. Stevens 
saw a wild man of the rocks uh, within the area of the Grand Canyon. And listen to this description. It had long white hair, matted beard that reached below its knees. (laughs) It wore no clothing. A coating of gray hair covered its entire body. And this wild man of the rocks threatened him with a large club and screamed the most unearthly screech, the wildest, most unearthly screech that I.W. Stevens had ever heard. Now that sounds like a very stylized conception of a, a wild man from that turn of the century time. Yet it has a couple features that are well known today, the scream being one. Being threatened with a club is pretty unusual. We don't hear too many of those reports, but the rock throwing has sort of replaced that as a feature of defensive posture of a Bigfoot type creature. Maybe Bigfoot found that throwing rocks was better than using a club. We don't know. <laughs> and there's only one of him. Yeah. I like the beard. The huge yeah, beard. Yeah, the beard. Cool. I, I can't help but think of those old Disney, like the real old black and white Disney cartoons where you'd see some sort of old animated creature and he'd have a yeah, right exactly <laughs> yeah that's club that's what popped into my head when the i Pac-Man thought about eyes. these so um you get into a, a study of this and again you're, you're talking about sort of a concentrated area of the state one name that you'll keep seeing popping up is a man by the name of don davis And unfortunately, uh, Don, uh, I think, passed away in 2002. But one of his stories, his recollections, is probably one of the best-known, if not the best-known story coming out of Arizona. And I'd like to share it with you because this is in his own words, which I think is just fantastic. And this is from BigfootEncounters.com. This is called Bigfoot at Tonto Creek from Gila County, Arizona. Uh, Tonto Creek, Muggy and Rim Country, north of Payson, Arizona, and Payson.com or whatever it was. That's what I was reading from before. So all the same area here. Bigfoot at Tonto Creek. At the sandbar on Bluff Creek in the summer of 1964, the depressions in the sand made by Bigfoot unlocked something in my mind something I'd glossed over and forgotten for a long time. It was the depth of the impression in relatively hard-packed sand that triggered a response in me. The unusual two- or three-inch ridge thrown up by Bigfoot's step was the catalyst. Soon thereafter, it all began to come back to me bit by bit. Even fairly recently, I've remembered a few more details. In the summers of 1944, 45, and 46, I attended 10-day sessions at a Boy Scout summer camp in Arizona. I was 12, 13, and 14, respectively, in those years. Late in each t- each 10-day session, the scouts divided up into troops of maybe 25 boys and an adult scoutmaster and went on an overnight hike of 15 miles round trip. The summer scout camp was located about 20 miles northwest of Payson, Arizona, in a ponderosa pine forest just under the Muggian rim of author Zane Gray fame. A creek named Tonto Creek flowed through the camp. In one of those years, I believe 44 or 45, I joined a group in an overnight hike to an area of Tonto Creek some miles downstream from the scout camp. It was an area not often visited. The U.S. Weather Bureau had an automatic weather recording device there that was due to its recording paper change, so they requested the scouts to do it on one of their hikes. The area was a little harder to get into than most hike destinations were. The last few miles in the trail, we were following passed alongside Tonto Creek through generally level forested country. The troops spread out along the trail maybe an eighth of a mile from those in the lead to those in the rear, all headed toward the campsite. Although none of us had ever been there before, we knew it would be easy to locate the camping spot as the trail would lead right to the weather reporting apparatus. Another boy and I decided to race all the rest of the scouts and each other to see who would get to the campsite first. We began to run along the trail, passing everyone in front of us. We didn't know how many were in front of us, so we just kept running along the trail, passing others and each other in a bid to be first. As we rounded a large tree that grew near the trail, the other boy, who was just ahead of me, came to a sudden dead stop. 
I tried to get past him, but he held me back as he stared down the trail. The trail headed more or less straight past a couple of clearings, to the left and the creek to the right. The big tree and the boy in front of me kept me from having a really good view of what was ahead, but I could make out a reddish-brown figure coming up the embankment from the creek onto the trail with a strange sort of rocking motion. The figure stopped on the trail in sort of a left profile to us and partially turned its body with a quick strange kind of jerk and looked down the trail towards us. At this moment, I was able to break past the other boy who screamed at me to stop and started running down the trail. The brown reddish figure ahead of me I took for another scout approximately a 100 yards ahead. Immediately as I got past the other boy, the scout stepped into the woods and was lost to sight. Since this scout was a good 100 yards ahead of me, I ran pretty hard, but still paced myself for a distance I believed to be about 100 yards or so. What I didn't realize at the time was that it was very hard to judge distances in the woods. All you can go by is the perceived length or height of a known object. Trees, rocks, and bushes don't help. I judged the distance of 100 yards based on the height of a boy scout or scout master. I was surprised when I was only about halfway to where I had last seen the scout that I began to run out of steam. When I finally got up to where the scout had entered the woods, I was really winded. I noted that the scout had missed the trail and gone off into the woods a bit in the wrong direction. This gave me added incentive, as I thought it would have an advantage over him, by keeping the trail that he had missed. I continued running along the trail. It was not too far after that I reached the camping area and found I was the first one there. Sometime later, the rest of the group started to arrive. They seemed relieved to see me, and several asked if I was all right. When the boy I'd been racing arrived, he was one of the last, he asked me about what I had seen on the trail and if I had encountered it again. He argued with me that it wasn't a Boy Scout. I told him that's what it looked like to me, and if he hadn't held me back, I would have seen it better, but what I glimpsed seemed more like a Boy Scout than anything else. Besides, what if it wasn't a Scout? He didn't know, but he said he would prove to me tomorrow that it couldn't have been a Scout. It seems he had expressed some fear for my safety to the other scouts as they caught up with him on the trail. But later, when I was questioned and didn't seem to be aware of anything very unusual, the rest of the group pretty much lost interest in what the other boy was reporting. We made camp, stretching out sleeping bags and setting packs and gear in place. It was then getting to be late afternoon, and some of the boys that had brought fishing gear went back down along the creek to try to catch some trout. I always found fishing along Tonto Creek to be non-productive, but, to my surprise, this time a few fish were caught. A couple of the boys came back saying that they had heard someone in the brush near where they were fishing, but when they called out, they got no answer. One boy said he ran into the brush to see who was there, but all he saw was the brush moving where someone had left in a hurry. One boy came back mad as could be. He claimed one of the boys stole a fish or two that he had caught. He questioned everyone that had been fishing until... He had it pinned down on the last boy to come in, but when that boy arrived, he didn't have the fish either. The boy that had lost his fish had gone away from his pole and fish into the bushes for just a few moments, and when he came back, his fish were gone. His very nice fishing pole and all his fishing gear hadn't been touched, which seemed very strange to all of us. Most of the scouts felt this boy was making it up about catching any fish. The scoutmaster decided there might be some kind of peculiar individual hanging around the area and cautioned us all to stay in camp together, but not to be alarmed, as whoever might be out there was very much outnumbered, and besides, there was no indication that he meant any harm. The next day, while crossing a high divide on the way back to the main scout summer camp, we came upon an old grizzled prospector with his donkey and equipment. <laughs> Perfect model for a crazed individual. That's pretty cool. That's like the first actual old grizzled prospector I've ever heard somebody talking about. That they ran across. Okay, that evening after supper, we sat around the campfire late into the night telling ghost stories. At one point, I thought I might have seen a movement out in the darkness, but decided it was my imagination being influenced by the stories. It was late when we broke up and got into our sleeping bags. We had laid them out in more or less a straight line, up a little ways above and back from the campfire area. When I got into my bag, I discovered some hard tree roots poking through the ground up into my back. I moved my bag several times, but everywhere I tried, there were more tree roots. Finally, I gave up, picked up my bag, and carried it down past the campfire area, looking for a decent spot. I finally found a spot in the middle of a soft dirt path on the far side of the campfire area near the weather reporting station. The path was very soft and dirty and ran between two areas of bushes. 
It was something like sleeping between two rows of hedges about three feet high. One of these rows effectively screened my vision of the campfire area. By that time, I'd been up for more than 16 hours, during which time I had hiked the better part of 10 miles with a full pack and sleeping bag. It was only a few moments until I dozed off. It wasn't very long after that that I heard someone fussing around the campfire area. I could hear him rustling his silverware as if looking for something. This lasted a little while, then stopped. I fell back asleep. Then it happened again. The noises woke me. Back to sleep. They kept waking me up. Finally, I spoke out and told him to quit making so much noise and go to bed. Then it all stopped for a while. A little while later, I was awakened by the noises coming from the campfire area. It wasn't steady, just the rattle of silverware and metal utensils from time to time. Finally, I heard footsteps coming along the path toward me from the direction of the campfire. The steps rounded the bushes on the path where I was lying and stopped at the foot of my sleeping bag. I peeked out and saw what I thought must be the scoutmaster standing there, except he seemed much taller than I figured he should be, but I was lying down on my back and figures sometimes look taller when viewed that way. There was a bright moon that night. Maybe it was full. It was to the right and a bit higher than the head of the scoutmaster I was looking at. In the moonlight, I could see hairs sticking out from the sleeves of the scoutmaster's jacket. I was surprised that he was wearing one of those big lumberjack-type jackets with hair like fibers protruding from out of it. But it had to be one of those jackets because it hunched up around his neck and was very bulky. Still, it was strange. He was wearing it, so I hadn't seen it with him before, and it was a summer night, not very cold. Very strange to me that he just stood there silently at the foot of my sleeping bag, not even moving. The moon was bright enough to hinder my vision a bit, but he must have been able to get a good look at me. I sat up in the sleeping bag, adjusting my position so that the scoutmaster's shadow would shield me from the moon and allow me better vision. In a few moments, I could see better. And what I saw gave me the shock of my life. There, standing still, less than four feet in front of me, was a monster-like man. Please note that I did not say a man-like monster. The creature was huge. Its eyes were deep-set and hard to see, but they seemed expressionless. His face seemed pretty much devoid of hair, but there seemed to be hair along the sides of his face. His chest, shoulders, and arms were massive, especially the upper arms, easily upwards of six inches in diameter, perhaps much, much more. I could see he was pretty hairy, but didn't observe really how thick the body hair was. The face and head was very square, square sides and squared-up chin like a box. Whenever I see a reconstruction of the skull of a Gigantopithecus, I'm struck by the similar square shape of the sides and bottom. To me, this night apparition looked like the half-monster men that sometimes used to appear in American comics in the 1930s. Heroes like Mickey Mouse had to outsmart them. They were massive and somewhat manlike in shape and body structure, but with the touch of a dumb, heartless beast in their features. For just a second or so I sat there, my eyes about even with the creature's knees, looking up into the face of this monster. Then I fell back into my sleeping bag, pulled it up over my head, and crunched down, scared to death. I didn't scream, I didn't try to run or call for help. If this thing were real, none of that would work anyway. But it couldn't be real. There was no such thing as what I was looking at. I must be dreaming. Hunched down in the bag, I listened intently for what my visitor would do next. I heard nothing for a little while. Then I heard it slightly shuffle its feet, and then I heard a crash crunch just above my head on my right side, the side away from the campfire area. This was followed by several footsteps moving away from me in the direction away from the head of my sleeping bag. Then I heard nothing more. Soon I began to smell something, and I realized I'd been so scared I must have involuntarily had a movement right there in my sleeping bag. It smelled awful. Still, I was so scared I wasn't going to do anything about it except scoot over as far as I could so as not to be in the mess any more than I could help. But the smell got worse. I needed some fresh air. Finally, monster or not, I chose the lesser of two evils and pulled the sleeping bag open and freed my head. Didn't help. The smell was just as bad with the bag, op bag open. Maybe worse. I lay there gasping. After a while, it seemed to dissipate a little, or else I got more used to it. I pulled the sleeping bag up over me again, crouched to the side away from the mess I made, and tried to figure out what was what. 
The next thing I remember was waking up to noises around the campfire area. It was morning. I could hear footsteps coming along the path from the campfire, just like the middle of the night. The steps stopped at the foot of my sleeping bag. I slowly pulled the bag down and looked out. The scoutmaster was standing there. I realized later he had been following footprints that led him to me. What did you see, he asked, probably noticed my relieved expression. I didn't see nothing, I replied in a matter-of-fact manner using very poor grammar. Looking past my head, he gave a startled look and said, What is that? I turned and looked. Just beyond my bag, a bush on the right-hand side of the path had been squashed. The main trunks of the bush were a couple of inches thick, and the bush had been several feet high. Now it was lying against the ground. The trunk splintered. The scoutmaster, noting the surprise on my face, must have believed me when I told him I had seen nothing. He must have figured I had slept through whatever had happened. He said to me, Get up and get packed. We are leaving right away. I told him I would, but I waited until he moved away to get out of my sleeping bag as I didn't want him to see the mess that I had made. Figured I would clean the bag and myself as best I could now and really give it a good cleaning later in the day. But when I opened the bag to survey the mess, there was nothing there. The bag was clean. No bowel movement. With relief, I realized it was all a dream. No monster like man. They just don't exist any more than the mess in my sleeping bag did. Must have been those ghost stories. Thankfully and purposefully, I forgot it all. I was the last one up. When I got around to the campfire area, I found out why we were leaving without having breakfast. There wasn't any food. Everything edible had been eaten. Breakfast and lunch for 20 or so boys including a whole box of dry pancake flour. Everyone's mess gear, all the cooking gear, and the remnants of food packages had been gone through and scattered all over the place. Never did find all my equipment. At first, all the other boys blamed me for the mess, as I was the only one that had slept apart from the others. But they soon came to realize I couldn't have eaten everything, especially dry pancake flour. So they figured it must have been that crazy guy in the woods. On the hike out, when I came to the clearing area where I'd seen the reddish-brown figure the day before, I found the scout I had been racing sitting on the sand below the trail and near the creek. At that point, there was a yard or so from the edge of the creek to a drop-off, maybe three or four feet, to the level of sand, which gradually sloped down ten or twelve feet to the edge of the creek. There, in the sand, approximately where we had first seen the figure the day before, were the prints. They looked to me much like what a rain boot leaves in very soft mud, several inches deep with a ridge thrown up around the impression. The other scout pointed out the tracks to me as proof that it couldn't have been a scout we saw the day before, as I had said. It would have been impossible for a scout to make these tracks. I answered that I couldn't see why not, and stepped in one of the tracks, and then in the one near it that showed the track maker turning around to go the other direction. The other scout then said to me, Okay, now, how are you going to step in that one? Pointing to the next track that was about twice as far away as my stride could take me. I took an extra step on the sand, leaving almost no mark, and stepped into the indicated track. At that, the boy got very upset with me, telling me to stop stepping in all the tracks as I was ruining them. It didn't register with me. About then, the scoutmaster came along as he was taking up the rear. He stopped. The other boy was so upset he was almost crying, but he asked the scoutmaster what had made the tracks. The scoutmaster said he didn't know and comforted him a bit. It never occurred to me to look inside the tracks before I stepped in them. All I really noted was the depth and thrown-up ridges, deep tracks and sand, similar to the depressions I would see 20 years later at Bluff Creek that would resurrect a long-forgotten incident. Don Davis That's amazing. We could just end right here and make the listeners think. But um, my one of my favorite parts about that story is how the, I assume it'd be Jerry Crew Prince, made him go, oh yeah, that happened years and years ago. And you know, the crazy prospector who yeah. was there. That's just a crazy report, I mean. And then... You yeah, know, it, it is. It's a true classic report. It must have been a dream whole thing, mm-hmm. except for the bush, which is now destroyed, and all the food's gone. I like his one phrase that he used. He said, very purposefully tried to forget it. I thought that that, and sort of along the lines of what you're saying, like trying to actively bury a memory, because you just don't know what to do with it. I mean, how do you, as a 
12, 13, 14-year-old boy, what do you do with that when at the foot of your sleeping bag is a creature of that nature? And there's, in this case, nothing between you, not even a, yeah. not even a tent. And that would be just, like he said, the shock mm-hmm. of his life. Yeah, I wouldn't react as good as he would. I'd be like... <laughs> I think interesting part is like it has to be a scout, and then like when he was seeing, he's like has to be a, a scout master, but it can't be. And then he realized what it might be, and he got scared and hid. That's great. Lesser you... of two evils. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it just those those type of details are just confirming details to me. I mean, this is an authentic thing that the guys reporting and potentially embarrassing details that you just wouldn't I don't think anyone would want to share unless those type of things had actually happened. So back when we're talking again about the muggy and rim there's one name in the modern era that keeps coming up again and again if you do any sort of internet search and that is the name of Mitchell Waite. Uh, Mitchell or Mitch Waite was well known for having done a lot of field research regarding the Muggian monster. And in fact, he and his wife, Susan Farnsworth, wrote a couple books on this very subject. What's truly intriguing is that the first collection of stories was more of a campfire stories type collection. And that seems to be the case with the Muggian monster, is that There's a lot of legend, a lot of folklore surrounding the creature, including origin stories that get kind of crazy. And to give you a flavor of what those are, one is that it was an exiled Indian chief that got kicked out of the tribe, and he used uh, black Indian magic to transform himself and then take revenge on the tribe that had exiled him. And it gets to the level of detail in some cases where it's medicine men that give him the secret to become a skinwalker. So you've got that going on. Other stories involve a pioneer victim. Uh, So uh, presumably uh, of European descent, pioneer coming in, uh, being attacked by Indians and uh, either driven out or killed. And then similar type deal happens where there's some dark magic involved. And he turns into this creature that now haunts the countryside, presumably looking for those who had done him wrong. And so that that factors into a lot of these type of stories. Although when uh, Mitch Waite got involved in 2007, you know, he had actual sightings. Uh, His first sighting, I believe, was while driving. Uh, He saw it up on a ridge and... um, wasn't that long of a sighting itself, but then got really, really drawn into the search for the creature in various interviews that he's done that are still available online and YouTube and places like that. He shows various tracks that he's found, and generally speaking, the tracks that are found are gigantic tracks, anywhere from 18 to 22 inches long and 8 inches wide, just massive. And that seemed to be a feature of the more modern muggy and monster accounts is you're talking about a 10 to 12 foot creature just incredibly huge Mm -hmm. and intimidating uh, when people see it something i want to add that we mentioned a little earlier um yarnell arizona is in in between flagstaff and phoenix so it's like central but it's to the west a little it's in the middle part of the state north south middle and then to the west a little bit one other thing i want to mention about mitch Waite is that he did pass away in april of 2015 and he is a very nice write-up on his life and career is actually found at lauren coleman's blog which is cryptozoonews.com and just search for mitchell Waite, and you will find that information a former major in the united states air force And just in the interviews that he's done, he comes across as extremely level-headed. You read a lot of comments, you know, in the YouTube feed and all that stuff. And 
almost without exception, he's well regarded by people and seems credible and honest and well respected, which in the Bigfoot community, it's not easy to have that level of consensus about you as a researcher. And Mitch Waite seemed to have that. Do you have anything else? Because I sure I do. Really, I don't. So go right ahead. I do have one more thing. This is in Polakka. One second. I am terrible with place names. Um, I just say Polakka. Polakka. Um, this is in northeastern um Arizona, and. Uh, there's a village up there that lots of sightings took place in. That's what the Bigfoot casebook taught me. What? Um, I also. I also think the the size in Arizona. It's seventies. It's short, and nowadays it's huge. I find that very interesting. Don't you? I do. Yeah, there seems to be the modern cases extremely large like the the upper end of bigfoot but and that could speak to some of the skinwalker because mm-hmm. that keeps coming into this uh, could be something very different than a bigfoot actually and uh unfortunately something more sinister as well um so did you have no oh okay so this i think we'll end with this one okay because it's a little it's just a great story, and it it comes from 1973. This uh, was in the mountains northwest of Flagstaff, Arizona, on Route 66. So I love this because it's sort of, it's a, a compelling and sort of uh, iconic sort of experience, and it's on Route 66, so it's sort of this whole Americana Bigfoot stew Pretty good stuff. So here is the report. My wife and I, with our three-month-old baby girl in the back seat, were traveling northeast on Highway 40 slash Route 66 through the mountains near Flagstaff, Arizona. This was right in the middle of a snowstorm. I stopped to read the map and reassure our directions. While looking at the map, I turned the rearview mirror light on to help see the map. In the mirror, I caught sight of a huge man-like figure running up behind the vehicle. I turned to get a better look, and my wife turned to. She screamed. It was clear to see a huge, hairy, black and brown, furry being. It was very tall, large head and long arms, running on two feet toward our vehicle. No other vehicles or tracks in the snow. Large pine trees bordered the highway. What's with the <laughs> Arizona Bigfoot and running up behind cars? That's terrifying. I would freak out yeah there's a researcher uh lyle mckinley with the bfro who gives a few extra details here and i think it's fascinating says while looking for the map he glanced up to catch the sight of what appeared to be large bulky two-legged figure running toward their stopped car from the rear he mentioned that the figure had unusually long arms and legs for a man the head appeared pyramid shaped but rounded on top it appeared to be covered in black or brown dark fur, no clothes observed. He estimated the figure's height to be near 10 feet tall. He quickly put the car in gear. He felt threatened and that his family might be in danger and tried to accelerate away from the fast approaching figure. The witness stated that the creature actually chased his car and came within 15 feet of the rear of the vehicle before he reached a speed of 45 miles an hour and began to put some distance between himself and the figure. Figure remained on two legs for the duration of the encounter and at one point even raised its arms over its head. At the time, the witness was 24 years old and a member of the United States Navy and, all caps, did not believe in the existence of Bigfoot-type creatures. He said that he assumed any reports of those creatures were hoaxes or just imagined. This experience changed his perspective and he's now a firm believer in the <laughs> existence of Sasquatch. He currently works for the U.S. Mint in Denver. Wait up, buddy, your taillight's out. Wait! (laughs) That's a classic report. Another classic. Arizona, the state of classic Bigfoot sightings. Can I point something out that's 
not related to Arizona, but related to Bigfoot. Certainly. According to John Green's book, The Apes Among Us, on the back cover, classic drawing of North America with Bigfoot, like the number of Bigfoot sightings in it. Guess, on the East Coast, except for Florida, guess what state has the most Bigfoot sightings on the East Coast? Without looking at the book. New York. No. New Jersey. Hmm. New Jersey has 36 reports. Right, and that was in 76. That was in or whenever, 76. Around That's the time more than Ohio has? Yeah. That's more than any other state except Florida, which has 104 on the East Coast. That's crazy. Random Bigfoot observations with Andy Matsky. All right, well, let's wrap up Arizona. What are some things that stand out to you? Maybe similarities, differences between Arizona, other states, or just within Arizona itself? He can be small, he can be huge, and he likes dry pancake flour. Um, he has a huge appetite for his huge size. And I think regardless of the height, it always is described of having long arms. I think that's about the most common thing throughout all this. Wouldn't you? Yeah, as a physical feature, that that sure would seem to be one. I think, again, I had heard of Moggy and Monster, but I really hadn't dug into the reports themselves. And now that I have, and having looked at the geography of the state, it seems to be, it reminds me in some respects of Alabama, in that it's not a state that you immediately think of as being Sasquatch territory, but there is a region of the state that has many of the classic features, which would include mountainous areas, ravines and cave systems, and uh, you know a cooler temperature in the evening. And Arizona certainly has that. And that, along with the, the Native American connections to me, suggests that this is a very compelling area that would be a great spot to drive around um, Flagstaff and go points north and east and uh, just keep driving through the night and see what you find. Um, just a reminder, Sasquatch is going to be at the Willoughby Hills Public Library July 5th and 6th. Um, July 5th is going to be, there's going at 6 o'clock, a small town monster movie will be shown. And then the next day there's going to be a presentation, right? Say that again? I wasn't listening to you at all. It's okay. I zoned out during this episode too. Um, it's, the presentation's the first night. The movie's okay. the second night. Yes, that's the way it is. Forget what I said. That's what he said. Um, that's at the Willoughby Hills Public Library in Willoughby Hills, Ohio, which is east of Cleveland. Just start driving east from Cleveland, you'll find Where it. the city meets the country. Yes, that's, that's Willoughby Hills' slogan. It is. We lived there for a little bit. <laughs> for a bit. We, we know. Um, that's it that I have. If somebody wants to get in contact with us, they how can, would they do that? They can write us at sasswatmail at gmail.com and they could also get in contact with us on our Facebook page and we have a Twitter account too it's Sasswat Show and come visit us at Sasswat Tower if you can somehow find Sasswat Tower <laughs> um, what's our next Sasswat Nation? do you know? offhand is it Arkansas? yes it's Arkansas regardless if that's alphabetical next Sasswat Nation is Arkansas <laughs> Sasswatmail at gmail.com. Write us. Facebook account. Facebook at us. Whatever works. <laughs> Send us a pigeon <laughs> a pair, with a little note stuck to its foot. Go find Sasswat. Fly. What, whatever you want to do that'll somehow get in contact with us. That's it. That's so, it. I'm out. So... For Seth Breedlove and Small Town Monsters, for the late researcher Mitchell Waite, for all those who are continuously on the track of Bigfoot, this is Mark and Andy Mansky saying, 
Red Hawk. Cry Wilderness. Wilderness. Watch MST3K. Revival on Netflix.